Welcome to the Backdrop Untold Stories in Golf. I am your mildly congested and moderately medicated host for today's episode and co-founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. And today we have a very, very special guest. Tyler Ray joins us of Tyler Ray Golf Design. Tyler's in his mid-30s. He's an up-and-coming architect in the industry and an industry where so few get established before they're 50. Tyler's kind of this anomaly. What he's been able to uh, achieve and the success of, of his career that far is uh, so impressive. And I've been impressed with him for uh, over a decade now, the work that he's been doing, and uh, really a treat to have him on the show today. We walk through a lot on this episode. He talks about kind of how the celestial orbs align for him to even get into this industry during his time at Kentucky all the work that he's currently doing in Chicago or Chicago members will be familiar with some of these staples as Northmore Oak park, Beverly and Skokie. I geek out extra hard on a place near and dear to my heart with Beverly. So we get into uh, the weeds a little bit on that one, but there's some cool things you'll learn about the project there and the other places he's working on in Chicago. And then we step outside the state of Illinois to places like Wakanda and Iowa that they're currently working on, Philadelphia Country Club, and another one near and dear to both our Atlanta members. And during the springtime, we like to pay a visit to Lookout Mountain. Yes, uh, Tyler and Kyle Franz have been announced to take over the master plan on the restoration of that Seth Rayner at Lookout Mountain. So there's so much exciting things happening in the business and happening uh, specifically for Tyler. So it really was a treat to have him on. I think what you'll hear throughout the the conversation is his admiration and reverence for the early architects of the 1900s and you know not just Donald Ross. He's become a preeminent student and an expert on Donald Ross courses, playing all but I think a handful of them. But he also just has this clear understanding of of what architects of that age were setting out to do. And and he touches on some of the great work of, of so many others, which is uh, really a treat. Another thing that's going to be a treat, and we're all looking forward to, is our club championships. Yes, we're rounding out on the season. We got two club championships this year for Atlanta and Chicago. Chicago, I'm going to start off with you because you got some work to do. The cutoff is coming. Our point race is heating up. We got a whole lot of people still on the bubble and our top 50 qualifiers from the season long points race are going to be moving on October 3rd to our championship qualifier. Yes. The club championship this year is two days. It's October 3rd at Chickamine country club on the other side of the pond, the lake around the corner, new Buffalo area. Uh, Chickamine is, is so cool. It's a 1930 Harry Collis design. If you don't know who Harry Collis is, Check out one of our earlier pods this year where Paul Wellman, the historian and member of New Club, he walks us through the life and times of Harry Collis. The guy built some awesome stuff and had a real impact on the game of golf in this area. Uh, but we're going to Chickamine. Chickamine is going to be our qualifier from the top 50 that play that morning at Chickamine. The top eight gross scores are moving on to the match play final at, you guessed it, the Dunes Club. So our, our champions are going to be playing at the Dunes Club. Match play until we have a winner. That's the championship flight. It's the top eight gross. This year, we're introducing the first flight. And the first flight is going to be net. It's our top eight net that did not qualify for the gross championship. We'll be playing in a first, a first flight championship. And we are introducing a newest tradition of the overall champion taking home 
some very cool hardware. We have been working for over a year with a blacksmith, an artist, a leather maker. We are trying to make something truly unique to the game of golf. And this championship belt and the corresponding hand-forged champion medals that our winners will be taken home forever. I think we did it. This is so cool to me. And so uh, that's what you're playing for. You're playing for the glory. It's our first mixed gender championship. It might be the first mixed gender championship of, of any private club. And we're, we're all having it unfold October 3rd, October 4th in the new Buffalo area for our Chicago members, Atlanta, hang tight. Your championship will be coming first week in November or second week in November. We're pinning down our venue and our, our, and our uh, dates, but that's coming up. I also should mention for Chicago Sunday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, after the Chickamine qualifier, we will be at journeyman distillery and we'll be having our closing meeting of the, of the year, kind of a party to kind of wrap things up and, and celebrate another great season of society. Golf will be at journeyman that afternoon. Uh, there will be food. There will be fun. There'll be Welter's folly. We'll be out on the 30,000 square foot putting green. Uh, I'm sure we'll be able to turn that into a competition and we'll be sampling the goods from our friends at journeyman all afternoon long. Last thing, last surprise we have for all of our contestants that are qualifying for that match play final, the 16, we're moving on to the Dunes Club. They will also have complimentary dinner and lodging at the flat at Journeyman Distillery. And your, your golf at Dunes Club will be complimentary as well. But however, this year, we have the whole flat. And this isn't like a three-bed flat. This place is huge. It sleeps 18. 16 of you will be there. Uh, pack a bag. This is kind of like the bachelor or the bachelorette. Who knows what's going to happen? Nobody knows what's going to happen. You got to pack a bag. You got to expect to play in the championship and, and you want to have clean clothes. So pack your bag. The 16 will be staying at the, the flat at journeyman distillery and having a really great couple of days. So October 3rd, October 4th, circling your calendars without further ado, let's move on to the show with Tyler Ray. Tyler Ray, welcome to the backdrop. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Matt. First time having you. I've, I've talked to you uh, in the context of this podcast for a few years, but never having you officially on the show. So this is, this is a real treat for me. Thank you. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this as well. I'm going to start with, you know, you're a younger guy. And I, I think it's very trendy to talk about the up-and-comers in, in golf, right? Look at all the articles that are on Golf Digest, Golf Mag, more that should mention you, by the way, and what, what you've been doing. But uh, I want to take it back to just falling in love with golf. And, and I know you're super passionate about this game, like so many of us are early in life, and, and it sticks with us for, for our, our entirety. Um, but many of us that have dreamt about working in golf don't always you know, fulfill that dream. And for you specifically, the study of golf course architecture, the uh, striving to be a golf course designer, wh where did that start for you and how did, you, how did it happen? Well, I guess, uh, you know, my career, you know, everything, I mean, my whole life has been based around golf. Both grandfathers put the club in my hand really, really early, probably three, four five years old. And, uh, my parents would just drop me off at the public golf course growing up. And then my grand, my one grandfather, uh, had a successful restaurant and, um, he became a member of a private club probably when I was about 10 and I joined him there. And every year for my birthday, he'd give me kind of a, a one-year membership, which was cool. And uh, so I'd go play with him a lot. 
And, uh, and that was a Tom Fazio course car called, um, Hartfeld national, um, just into Pennsylvania over the Delaware line. But, uh, but basically, you know, everything revolved around golf, you know, I would play baseball and soccer and basketball growing up, everything, you know, and just be outside all day. But, um, but I kind of just, uh, you know, was attracted to golf because, uh, you know, there were so many different things going on with it. You know, uh, you didn't have to rely on teammates. You weren't let down or, or there weren't other guys overshadowing you. You know, if you played basketball and I'm 5'11", 5'10", you know, I, I knew there wasn't a long, you know, there wasn't longevity in that, but, uh, but no, so it, you know, you kind of whittle things down and, uh, I whittled it down pretty early, probably by about 13 or 14 and just focused on golf and, uh, became a pretty good player and was recruited by, a, you know, 12 or 15, you know, colleges and universities. And, um, but I never had that next gear and still don't, <laughs> and I still don't have the next gear, but, uh, and never will probably, but, uh, but I could never take it into the mid sixties, like some of these guys or the lower sixties. And, uh, you know, I'd get three or four under par and, you know, end up having a bogey or two coming in and shoot two under, you know, where these guys would take it to the next level and end up four five, six under. So I just, uh, I knew I wasn't going to be a pro. I knew I wasn't gonna be a superintendent and, um, but I still wanted to play a lot of golf and I love the architecture and I love the different playing fields. Um, you know, every golf course was different and that was really attractive to me. You know, just really, um, you know, you, you're one with the land when you're out there walking the golf course and, and playing and you, you're with nature and you hear the birds and the wind and you're looking at beautiful trees and, you know, every landscape's different. And so that I think was super attractive to me, you know, being outside my whole, you know, always being outside growing up. And so it just gives you that good feeling, kind of that childhood feeling. Um, but, uh, but no, so I went to university of Kentucky and, and, uh, try to, you know, um, play for coach Craig there. Uh, but he let me know real quick freshman year that I should probably do landscape architecture, um, which was the best career move, you know, best life decision, probably, you know, um, the, the the best life decision was going to Kentucky because I learned real quick that there was that different level and and you get put in your place real quick in the SEC. And so I learned one that I wasn't going to play top level college golf. And then I learned two that, you know, wow, they had a good landscape architecture program. They were number 12 out of 55, I think, when I went there, you know, some top 15. And and uh, and then I went um, the third greatest thing was uh, all right in a row there from 18 to 20 was Keith Foster had a farm uh, right outside Lexington in Paris, Kentucky, about 40 miles from UK. So I went to Kentucky, um, quickly got pushed into landscape architecture, which was great. And then quickly learned that Keith Foster was right up the road. So I could work for him when I was in college. So, uh, so that's kind of the long winded way of how I got into it. And, uh, just, you know, it's kind of that, that process of elimination <laughs> where you're not going to be a pro, you're not probably going to be a superintendent. Um, cause I didn't have the, I didn't have the, uh, agronomy. I didn't have the, um, you know, those guys are wizards with chemistry and all that. I mean, they're brilliant, brilliant, very underrated humans. And, um, so architecture, that's, that's where I, what I, I went for. And it was basically like 17, 17, 18. Uh, so it's been half my life now you know, or more than half my life. 
That's a that's a interesting theme that it always reoccurs on on this show with guests that have been successful uh, in golf, but also in just their career of choice is you know failure elsewhere uh, that they learn to to go at something to to fail at it and move on to the next and and not that you know you, you sounds like you you're you had a good career you're a good player but but by most standards play to a, a form of game that many people would admire but uh, but yeah you didn't make it to that team, but you certainly had a, you fell sounds like in, in the right place. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Serendipitous for sure. Was so. we're about the same age. Was JB Holmes on that Kentucky team when you were there? Yeah, he was a junior, I believe he was a junior. And uh, when I was a freshman and I think he was NCAA player of the year, I think runner up to Ryan Moore. I know Ryan Moore had his number at UNLV uh, but there were a bunch of really good guys on that team. And, uh, but yeah, JB was the standout and, you know, now, I mean, gosh, four Ryder cups, I think nine tour wins. He's had a good run. So I saw, I saw that next level for sure. And, uh, you know, there's a reason he is where he is and there's a reason where, <laughs> where I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Both top of your games, you know, just different, uh, <laughs> different, different games, same game, different categories. Um, let's just dive into, to Donald Ross. Right, we we have uh, a lot of Ross stops on our society schedule, both locally in Chicago. Um, not much Ross in our other chapter, which is Atlanta. But we're we're making a pilgrimage to to Scotland as a golf society next year. We're going to Royal Dornock, so I I want to spend some time talking about all the restoration work you've done at the dozens of iconic Donald Ross designed golf courses we have in this country. Um, is there I know there's quite a variety to them that you've worked on. What would you say were Ross's overarching principles? Um, if you were going to boil it down to just, just a few. Whew. Well, you know, he, uh, you know, obviously he spent some time in the office or on the train before getting to a site, looking at the routing and trying to come up with a routing. He would always request a topographical, you know, topographical map, or an engineer to survey uh, the property before he actually took the job. So I know he dealt with a lot of flat golf courses or flatter golf courses in, in many different parts of the, you know, America, you know, all the way down in Texas and then all the way, you know, obviously in Florida and, and then uh, out even in Kansas. Uh, but, uh, but he, um, yeah, I guess uh, some, some overriding principles would be, you know, to route the golf course gently, fit the land, you know, fit the golf course to the land. Um, usually, I know, I know he'd always build up his greens. I mean, very seldomly do you see a green laying on the ground. Um, and only those greens were ones that basically were already there from Bendelo or somebody else. And he just said, hey, it's a great green site. Let's just leave it. You know, there's so many notes of his where, where I found um, – you know, every day we're looking at stuff and, and you see more and more where he leaves two or three greens on an existing golf course that was already there. Either it was Willie Park who came before him or Tom Bendelo or, or, uh, Alexander Finley, somebody, somebody like that. Um, but he would, he had a tendency cause he was, uh, or a proclivity to leave some things because he was a Scot and he was trying to provide a value, you know, for the owner or for the club. Um, so, you know, but, but if he built a new green, it was usually perched up three, four, five feet in the air for drainage. It was all about drainage, you know, so they could grow that 
putting surface as tight as possible. Those, those old vents, um, German vents that they were seeding, uh, in the twenties and thirties and teens, I guess. But, um, but yeah, so I guess, you know, he focused a lot on routing, fitting, fitting the holes to the land, you know, some perched up greens or some really great natural green sites. Um, you know, then probably, probably, uh, other things would be, uh, leaving some, um, some key features that were on the site. So streams, he would hardly ever, you know, bury or pipe a stream. I've seen it, uh, recently on some, some places where a stream or Creek was in a odd spot and he would pipe it, especially later in his career. Um, but they didn't move a ton of earth, you know, he didn't move a ton of, ton of earth at all. And, uh, but he was brilliant with, um, you know, incorporating those streams, creeks, uh, natural ponds, um, you know, and then, uh, a significant tree here or there, I've seen him leave. Um, you know, I just was up at Schuylkill country club in Pennsylvania and they had one Oak that was on the plan that just fell down this past year, had to be 300 years old, but Ross marked it on the plan and left it and noted it on the plan, which I've seen from time to time. So we'd use some of those features and then old stone buildings and, and, uh, rock outcroppings he'd use and utilize in the routings. And then, you know, what else, uh, you know, some other principles, I guess, more principles than what he would leave or touch or do what, uh, would be, you know, strong par fours, you know, uh, great, great, uh, greens, you know, par, par threes where, you know, there's so many times he played from, uh, ridge to ridge for greens over big valleys. Uh, so it was almost like, you know, I've always, I've always, uh, been a big fan of, of the UK, you know, the Scottish UK British game. And when I was over there in 09 for a long, for a long, uh, extended period, you know, I found it fascinating how James Braid or Colt would kind of route the par threes first. And I feel like a lot of these guys did that. You know, they found great four great par threes. You know, Braid was, was always trying to find four great par threes all in different directions for the wind, which was fascinating. I think, I think Ross did that a lot too. So he probably found his par threes first, then laid out the fours, you know, and then the other thing is there was no par, you know, there were no, there was no par ever on a raw scorecard. Um, you know, they were just golf holes and you try to shoot the best score you could. And, uh, and, um, but you know, some other principles, you know, back to front greens, cause they had to slow down that golf ball coming in, you know, the golf ball was coming in so much lower than people think they weren't hitting it high and stopping it. There was no spin and the, and the golf courses were dry, you know, burned out. There's hardly, there wasn't really irrigation, even center line until about the thirties or forties there was some green, green irrigation, but they would land this ball 30 and 40 yards in front of the green and run it into the green. So the ground was alive. So, you know, they put a lot of stopping action in those greens back to front. So when we see those greens, like what we're going to talk about probably at Beverly, you know, very steep, seven, 8%, some of these things, but it would help slow down the golf ball. So I guess uh, for him, you know, some principles, uh, steep back to front greens, um, you know, and, and later in his career too, he interjected more contour, you know, early in his career, it was very basic back to front. Um, and as the technology grew and steel shafts came into fruition in the late twenties, um, he started defending his golf courses more vigorously, you know, with more contour in his greens, more bunkers, he would move those bunkers from the side of the greens and wrap them in front, you know, by the late twenties, probably by about 20, 24, 25, 26, he was really evolving. Um, but so his principles kind of evolved along with him, 
but but the overarching stuff great routings fit in the you know fit in the course of the land back to front greens strong fours great par threes um you know and then um you know i hear one thing i do want to and i'll stop talking in a second here but one thing i do want to talk about is uh or just mention is you hear all the time from committee members and people on twitter and instagram and they say well ross would always do this or ross would never do this and i try to always debunk that and i go look neither you know ross ross will fake you out and surprise you all the time everywhere you go and the more and more i have a couple a handful left to see of ross of ross's courses i'm almost done with the whole list and uh you know, studying them every time you go somewhere, he'll surprise you. And so there's not, you know, when people say, Oh, Ross always had a gentle handshake. No, 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 no. You know, or Ross had a firm handshake to start his round. I hear that all the time. There are short fours, long fours, part fives. There's crazy holes. Sometimes there's easy holes. He, he didn't stick to, you know, he wasn't sticking to any rhyme or reason. He was trying to find the best 18 golf holes. That's that's so funny. You say that because I'm I'm definitely guilty, guilty as charged. One of those you know committee members who who uh, think that a lot because of the four Ross courses I play the most have gentle handshakes or or kind of the welcoming handshake that that must be Ross. And I've said it, but it's cool to hear you say that. I'm sure just at the sheer vastness and number. I mean, what is his his real number, Tyler? Of courses. It's 422 as of now, maybe 423. I mean, we're finding two or three a year um, from new old newspaper articles. As more newspapers are being digitized, we're finding more and more, and then we're finding more of his notes and stuff like that. Uh, but it was 422, I know, of this spring. We, we might have found one more <laughs> recently. But it's 422, and there's like 359 existing. Existing, okay. And you've seen how many of those? I've got like 14, finally 14 left. I had like 32 years ago and I slowed down, um, just as work, you know, work has gotten, work has gone through the roof, you know, obviously the COVID deal. Um, and there's just a couple hard ones. I can't, I haven't gotten to the mountains of Virginia or of uh, North Carolina. There's a couple in the, in the mountains of North Carolina I have to see. And, um, what else I have like two in New Hampshire, a couple in Canada, a couple of random ones. Yeah. And, and- that's that's just incredible for um someone who is busy you know has a lot going on and uh we just had tom coin on the podcast and he was telling us about a course called america and his 300 plus rounds that he played and a lot of our members questions was just about the planning of that and and how do you actually execute on that many rounds and he did it in eight months because he's you know, he's Tom Coyne, but, uh, for the rest of us that have day jobs, what, what is it like for you? If you, if one of those 14 on your list that you have to get to, how, how do you work it into your schedule? I mean, you're going to your clients and you're doing work in the dirt, but when do you make time for that? How does it actually work for you to chip away at it? Yeah, there's a, like, like say I'll be at Cherokee country club in Knoxville Monday and lookout mountain in Chattanooga later on Monday. And there's one called Kingsport up in the north corner of Tennessee. I think it's, oh God, I can't remember the name of it, but it's in, it's in Kingsport. I want to say it's, uh, I can't remember the name, but it's a, it's a good layout. And I've asked the guys at Cherokee about it. So it's about two, two and a half hours from Cherokee. And it, I just like, haven't made it there, but usually I'll parlay it into a trip. So if I'm going down the Cherokee, I'll fly in the Sunday night before 
I'll drive up to Kingsport at three 30 or four in the morning, you know, walk it in the morning before golfers leave there about nine, come back down to Cherokee. It just has to work. But, um, some of these, I, I, uh, yeah, when we, I just went out with to Kansas city country club a month or two ago, and there were two Rosses out there, one in Topeka, Kansas, and one in Kansas city. Um, so I parlayed that into that trip. I flew out a day earlier with Jim Ryan, uh, the designer, you know, my design associate. And, uh, and he was kind of squawking at me because we got up at three 30, I think, you know, and went out there on a Monday morning and <laughs> drove out to Topeka from Kansas city and saw that one and then came and saw Hillcrest and then, uh, and then went to Kansas city country club about noon. And, um, so they're long days, but you have to get it. You have to be, uh, enthusiastic and I love it. I'm a golf junkie, you know, like I said earlier, and it's nothing off my, my shirt to wake up at three 30. Cause I'm so excited to go see these things. And you know, you drive out there and there's, it might not be the greatest course in the world. It might be under, you know, it might be underfunded, stuff like that, but there, there were three or four really good holes out there, you know, that would made the whole trip worth it. And, uh, and I was, you know, really, really surprised at, uh, how good those three or four were and how he fit the land and how they were maybe the best three or four holes. I saw that whole trip and we saw about eight courses, you know, in four days out there. So, and you don't but, always, you don't always play them, right. You don't always see it up. You're just wanting to see the the holes yeah. and that, that is, does that give you enough fulfillment? I know a lot of us junkies need to have a club in our hand and see that ball fly, but do you get that fulfillment just seeing those four or five holes? Yeah, I'll see. Um, you know, so obviously we walk one to 18, so we see it all. Uh, but, um, and we spend a lot more time on the greens, you know, and approaches, stuff like that. Cause I always am interested in the greens, uh, cause they're so detailed, uh, but, um, and the routings and all that, but, but no, um, for me, you know, it's like, I always scoff at everybody that they, when they say, Oh, you, you need to play the golf course. And I go, well, it's twofold. It's, it's a double-edged sword there. You could be hitting a big fade that day and be down the right side of the golf hole the whole day and then miss a lot of greens and kind of almost pick up sometimes, you know, if you're not playing well and be really frustrated, miss the whole entire left side of the golf course, any of the architecture, um, the whole left side of the fronts of green, stuff like that. Um, you know, or you could be playing really well and hit it right down the middle, shoot 68. And you were so into your game because you were playing one of the best rounds of your life or something like that. And you totally are oblivious to architecture. So then it's all about how you play. People remember, you know, really great. Oh, wow. That golf course is so good. I'm like, well, how'd you play? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so when I take golf out of the equation, I feel like I'm very, you know, I'm much more, um, I guess, you know, uh, subjective you know, much more subjective. And then, you know, I don't, I don't really miss stuff anymore. I probably used to miss some things, a role here or there, or some of the strategy about a layup on a part five or going for a part five and two, but I, anymore, we're really looking at the land. We're really looking at the roles. We're really thinking about where the landing zones are, where, where the next shots are going. So it's, it's, you know, we'll pick out stuff too. And usually if I'm with Jim, he'll pick out a couple things, which is great. So if you go with a partner, that always helps. Yeah following the trail of, of Donald Ross, the way that you have, I have to imagine it feels like, you know, him, you know, him, you know, that, you know, the man, um, you already shared the kind of the, the debunked, uh, that he would always do something. So it sounds like that's one thing that maybe a lot of our listeners wouldn't think of. Are there other things that people just don't know about Donald Ross? One or two things that come to mind. 
Yeah, I don't want to, uh, you know, these usually help me a lot in interviews <laughs> with Ross Gloves. So I don't like to give out too much of uh, too many tidbits. But that's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you this know, it's untold no... stories in golf, though, Tyler. Right. We're right. trying to untell some of them. Right. You know, because it, uh, it's funny that when you go to a Ross course and you're interviewing, you say, look, I know in my heart there's one other guy, Brad Beckin, who's seen them all. And I know in my heart I'm probably the second guy in the world who's seen the most truthfully and brad maybe looks at it in a totally different lens because he plays and you know he's an older gentleman and this and that and i look at it in a totally different way so maybe maybe i do have more ross knowledge just seeing courses than most um but then i'll, I'll also throw out a lot of tidbits in those interviews you know and and kind of share some things that i see but you know one thing i think that probably is the overarching kind of a theme or, or, or something that I've been seeing a lot lately as I evolve and get better every year. Um, I'm very cognizant, obviously of construction and how the contractor or the gentleman in the field, you know, they matter tremendously to the end product. And I see, I go to so many Ross courses, even now for like the third and fourth and fifth and sixth time, I was just at Monroe golf club in Pittsburgh, New York, right down the street from Oak Hill. So Oak Hill East overshadows Monroe. Monroe is a fabulous Donald Ross golf course from 1922, 1923. And it's all sand. I was very fortunate to be hired by them in 2015. And before that they had Gil Hans for about 15 years. So I followed in great footsteps and got to see a lot of what he had done and what, you know, his plan and what he had devised for the club. The funny thing is I've probably been there 15 times and I was there in late May, early June. And something hit me this time where I was a little disappointed how the construction, it didn't match a lot of the drawings from Ross. And we've seen this a lot, you know, and, and, uh, and what I finally gathered this time, I was just out there a lot on my own, probably for about two days. So I flew in like on a Friday and stayed till Saturday night. So I was there Friday morning to, till 5 p.m. Saturday, 6 p.m. Saturday. And, uh, you know, I got to spend probably about seven hours on my own, just walking around, looking at things, watching a lot of golf. Um, and I realized one thing, one thing hit me over the head and it was like, you know what, I'm looking at this plan and Ross's drawings and there's probably 10 holes that are spot on. And then there's about eight that aren't. And when you look at all the old aerials, not much has been changed at all since the thirties. So this is how it was built. So why did those eight holes not get built to Ross's drawings? So then I look at, okay, I look at all the lineage of who was there. Well, this guy, Jim Connaughton came over from Scotland in 2019, right? He works for Ross, I think at, gosh, somewhere in Boston. I want to say it was uh, Charles River in 2120 when they built that. And, uh, and um, gosh, I want to say Winchester or something like that. So then he comes out to... Monroe and falls in love with it. And he tells Ross that, Hey, I'm going to construct it for you, but then I want to be the superintendent after because my wife loves it. My kids love it here. It's a beautiful idyllic town, which it is. Pittsburgh, New York yeah. is a gorgeous suburb of Rochester. It's idyllic. So I learned all that from the past pro Jim Merva, who had just retired. And he, he sent, he showed me the back of a frame. Jim Connaughton was at Monroe from 1922 to 1960, almost 40 years. So he retired there and everything. Well, what 
I also learned by going to a country called the Buffalo and a bunch of other courses where, where JB McGovern was in charge of the construction. He was one of Ross's like three top guys, um, construction foreman. He built Toronto Inc., other ones like that. Um, what I've seen from him is a proclivity, you know, a tendency to kind of break up bunkers, you know, 60 foot long bunkers by 30, 60 by 30, right? 1800 square foot bunkers. He'd break them into twos and threes sometimes. And I'm not sure why, but I've seen it at Jeffersonville, Ronaming, Country Club of Buffalo. Um, I mean, like 15 courses, probably 20 courses. And um, so I see JB McGovern's breaking up of bunkers. So I see all things that he'd done. But then I hit me over the head that I think, you know, I said, you know what? I bet Jim Canon had a heavy hand in this because it was all sand and you could really, really motor. They got the job done in like six months. They broke ground in May of 22 and it was seeded by October. And then they hit the first golf ball July 4th the next year. So it was like a rapid building. That's another reason. I think they went too fast and it was all sand so they could just motor, but the greens are perched up. They're beautiful. They're, they're, they're incredible. There's seven or eight greens that don't have the interest of some of the others and they don't match the plan. And then there's a bunch of bunkering that's a little off and just the details, a lot of details I was really disappointed with. And so it's so hard for me to tell Monroe that because they want to be top 100 and everything and they can be, but I'm almost like, I think JB McGovern and Connaughton, Jim Connaughton actually hurt the final product. Um, cause, cause Jim was going to maintain it for the rest of his life. He probably wanted to make it a little easier to maintain, you know, little things like that. And so I, I come to this conclusion and sorry for the really long-winded answer here, but I come to this conclusion with them and I'm like, well, what do we do? What do I do as an architect? Do we put this puppy back to Ross and make it as spectacular as drawings are? His drawings are otherworldly. Or do I honor the aerial and just say, well, I guess it's not going to be that good because Jim Connaughton got involved a little too heavy-handedly and same with J.B. McGovern. So it's a, what a fine line there. And so... I don't know, you know, and then do they, they, and, and the third, thirdly, do they have the stomach to blow up some of these greens and spend 2 million instead of 800, you know, or spend two and a half instead of 800 and really make it as good as it can be. Yeah. I don't know, but the raw drawings are otherworldly. I think there's one thing that, cause I've got to see, you know, your, your presentations, I've gotten to see how you, how you work to a degree and, and get buy-in from memberships. And I talked with your design associate, Jim Ryan, about this as well. It's just that that whole interaction with the, the committees and, you know, a lot of people would say in, in traditional business, um, the customer is always right, you know, and, and if they're willing to pay us for something, I mean, we've heard this in golf course architecture and construction in the past, right? If, Hey, if, if so-and-so has, billion dollars and they want to pay me x for for doing y they're the they're the customer they're the client but there's um what i've seen in your guys process and your process specifically tyler is uh there's conviction to doing the right thing for um history for longevity for not just the loudest members but the other members as well and and um it's it's admirable because i know it doesn't make things easy but I think my question here is when you're going into those meetings, knowing that, you know, there's a percentage that'll agree, a percentage that won't, 
Uh, does that ever change uh, w- w- what you present or is it always, are, are you um, starting with those Ross Rollins and starting with the original intentions? Is that like kind of your, your beacon, if you will, of, of uh, true North? Yes. If you have the drawings, I mean, that he drew them himself, usually on the train ride to the next course, you know, and he would usually spend three days on that golf course, you know, when he was hired and routing the golf course. So, you know, usually if you have that, that's spectacular. And you, we, we want to honor that. And then if you have some really great aerials or ground shot photography, we want to look at that. And then there's usually periodic um, newspaper articles from the period, from the day, you know, like Beverly, we had a plethora of newspaper articles talking about his changes to the golf course and this and that. And we knew Beverly was pretty much 13 or 14 holes of, of uh, O'Neill, George O'Neill, the, the prior uh, pro uh, who went on to design Barrington Hills and other great golf courses himself. Um, and then Ross only came in, you know, he came in in 1918, 1919 and only rerouted five holes. Uh, but he did make them a lot better. Um so it's really a George O'Neill course with, you know, Ross coming in and tinkering. They were flat greens on the ground though. And Ross was responsible for all the greens. So to me, it's okay. It's, it's a big, you know, 14, 15, 13 holes or George O'Neill five or Ross rerouting, but it's all of Ross's greens and they are spectacular and bold. So, but yeah, we want to look at Ross drawings, the history, newspaper articles, aerials, and then kind of get like, okay, take them all and get a game plan, you know, and figure out our avenue and what's going to be the story. You know, you have to have a story that's um, believable and that everybody's going to run with and be excited about, um, you know? So, um, but for me, you know, as I get, you know, further into my career and all that, uh, there's been those circumstances where the club hasn't, you know, decided no, I wouldn't say the proper thing, but they haven't, you know, they've been, maybe they didn't want to spend the proper amount of money or they didn't want to do this. And they, Oh, it's just good enough. You know, let's, we understand where you're coming from Tyler, but then you sit in that bulldozer or excavator for the whole job and you're just pissed off the whole time. <laughs> you know, you're kind of like, yeah, I know this can be better. And you, and, and it just grinds you down because you, when you know, something can be better. I mean, what, what's worse in life failed potential. You know, um, I saw, I saw a, uh, it was something funny that resonated with me maybe two years ago. I saw a bumper sticker and it was, it, it was something really funny, like, like, uh, never realizing my full potential, you know, just <laughs> on the bumper sticker. And I was like, gosh, you know, like every day you got to strive to, we have so much potential. We should strive to get up early, get out of bed and grind, work our tails off and be the best we can be. You know, and this is the same with the restoration. It's like, if we have all these tools and we have all this evidence of how great this golf course was or could be, let's do it. It's liberating when clubs like Beverly give you the keys and they say, okay, we know what our whole 12 was like. You know, we see the old photos of how bold that par three 12 was. And it was 108 yards in the USC amateur 1931, but it was like, they were like cliffs falling off that green. And we had a photo of uh francis we met's competitor i think in the semis he got in the front bunker on 12 and the green literally is like 10 feet above him and he couldn't get out he left one in there and then got out and he had five 
on that hole. And Francis Wimet had a three and won the hole and I think almost closed him out, something like that. But it was a meaningful hole. Now, I remember seeing that photo and being like, this thing was a little volcano. You know, and somebody had lowered it and tinkered with everything on that hole. Um, but luckily, you know, fortunately, the membership allowed us to, you know, hey, we trust you guys. You're the, you know, like Andrew Lewis and some of the great, great Tom Holub, some of the great members there and Green Committee chairman and president. You know, they said, we hired you for a reason. You're, you guys are the experts. Let's roll. And, uh, and Ron Pritchard, you know, that was our last job together. He gave me a ton of freedom. Um, he kind of just let me do my thing. And we argued a lot about some things and we, we butted heads on some things like architects do, but in the end, I think the product is probably the best of my career and one of the, hopefully the best of Ron's. That, and from the lowly member perspective, I'll just share my two cents on something like 12. You know, I've walked past that picture that they, they put up, uh, prior to you guys doing the work there. And being a golf junkie, golf nerd, like so many of us, you just say, how cool is that? You know, how cool is that? The feeling of actually, you know, seeing the picture of that competitor in the 1931 bunker and then actually being in it, you know, the golf's the one thing where you get to play, you get to play in the artwork. I I think that's the, the main thing that has gotten me into architecture. Like so many of us over the last couple of years is don't just look at it. Don't just appreciate it. Go play it. And uh, that hole in particular, man, every time someone gets to it now, it almost, it, it almost does drive me nuts though. Cause like, you know, the, the term signature, it gets uh-huh. tossed around and I know you hate it. I hate it. Everybody, most people do, but every time I'm with the guests or somebody they're they're like, look at this hole. Holy crap. This has to be your signature hole. I go, no, it's just a good part three guys. It's just a good part three. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're just, uh, yeah, it's just a good part three in Chicago and fun you know, old volcano hole like Ross would do, you know, and build. You, you mentioned earlier the uh, early Ross, later Ross, that he didn't, he had uh, different ways of doing things throughout his career. Um, most of Chicago's courses are early Ross, I believe. Um, what are, what are those characteristics of, of early Ross that our, our listeners would look out for the courses they see around here? Yes, you're you're correct, Matt. Uh, I think his last work might have been Beverly in Chicago. It might have been because we had thought for a while he done he had built Lagrange, but that was debunked, and that was 21. So I always thought Lagrange was his last work in Chicago, but I think Beverly was in 1919, 1918, 1919. So odd that he never came back, but I think he had so much work there early in his career. I think he'd had 11. You know, I think because uh, it was 12 with LaGrange. So I think it's 11 uh, now that we figured that out. But um, so 11 courses in Chicago and it was all between 1913 and 1919. And uh, his name obviously blew up because he built Old Elm for Colt, you know, in 1913. And then literally everybody called Oak Park in 1914, Skokie 1914, um, Ravislow, I believe. I mean, it was just five or six clubs called him you know, right after that, you know, uh, and then, uh, Evanston, you know, even Lakeshore, Northmore was 1918, stuff like that. Exmoor, I think was early 1914. So, um, yeah, he had a ton of work in, in Chicago, uh, but then never came back. So Chicago is kind of representative of his early, his early period. So there's kind of three periods. I always say, um, early period, he emigrated, obviously, uh, April of 1899, 
and he just only worked in Boston pretty much that first year. And then he went down to Piners for the Tufts in 1900, 1901, uh, and found sand and was like, oh, this is totally different than Boston. You know, and it's not clay and rock and cold and um, and wet. And so he, um, but from probably about 1899, the, the first World War, or so uh, 1919, uh, maybe uh, 1918, 1919, uh, right when he was finishing Beverly, probably is his first period. And it's, uh, it is represented by fewer bunkers in number. So 30, 39, 40, usually under about 60 bunkers, but they were big in scale. 2,000, 20, 2,800 square feet, 3,000 square feet, uh, long linear, like submarines out there, angled submarines kind of perpendicular to play. So sometimes they're 80 feet wide by 20 feet deep. Um, and, and not too sexy, you know, nothing too crazy. Just the dirt that they scooped out, uh, from the bottoms that created the cavity, created the shoulders. Uh, and he would fit them into the landforms and read the ground, but they were a lot of, they were more flanking bunkers. So when you would, your dispersion, your, your ball dispersion would kind of go off the hole. They would kind of catch you, keep you in play. There were a lot of four bunkers kind of to test all skill levels. You know, the females, the juniors, the older duffers, they would call them. He wanted to test all skill, uh, skill levels, all players, um, all handicaps. So he would have, uh, you know, sometimes five to 15, we call top shot bunkers or four bunkers. And he'd have a couple fairway bunkers that were meaningful. And then at the green, every green was open in the front up until about 1919. And he would flank the green on both sides, not up against the green. Like we're thinking, you know, you have the green and then you fall off in the bunkers. We're talking about the approach is flanked. They would kind of be at a, you know, um, Almost like if you're playing, uh, oh gosh, um, not skee ball, but uh, <laughs> like an arcade game, how you have the uh, flippers, you know, kind of guiding you into the hole. Pinball? Pinball. Yeah, yeah, yeah pinball. Yeah. So they would be kind of these pinball bunkers. Um, and uh, if you were just off, because you were running that ball in from 30, 40, 50 yards out. So if you were just off with your line, the ball may funnel into those bunkers. So really, really cool. Um, so that's, uh, and then back to front steep six, seven, eight, ten percent, uh, squarish, very squarish, uh, in the back built up five feet, the front might be at grade. Um, so, uh, and then just one or two T's and sometimes very long, you know, I've uh, read a lot of his notes where they are a hundred, hundred feet long, just one long runway T. So when people say again, another fallacy, <laughs> you know, oh, RTJ was known for his runway T's dude, Ross started that he had runway tees all over him in the start of his career, especially on his flatter courses. When it was super hilly, obviously you can't put a runway tee that's hundred feet long or hundred yards long. But, uh, but he would generally say, you know, uh, 30 feet wide by hundred, <laughs> you know, or 30 feet wide by 120. Um, so those are, you know, 40 yard long tees, 30 yard long tees, um, uh, way before RTJ. And then, um, so then you get to 1918 and the second period, it's like 1918 to 19, 31, probably the end of, or the start of the great depression. Yes. Great depression was when November 29. So we're talking and like, it really didn't golf really didn't feel the effects until after his seminal job or mountain range job, maybe Jeffersonville, those three jobs were 30, 31 that finished, you know, Seminole I think started in 29 finished, maybe 30, 31, same with mountain Ridge, same with Jeffersonville. Those are three iconic, really, really great works of art where they were on such a roll. 
Um, but from anyway, so 1919 to 19, there's almost, you can almost break the second period up into two periods because from 1919 to 24, that five-year period, he was still getting out of that um, first transition and transitioning into more bunkering, uh, up to 100 bunkers, 120 bunkers on some golf courses, breaking up tees, more tees, um, more interjecting more character into his greens, and then, uh, you know, putting bunkers in front of greens because he knew it wasn't all about uh, running the ball in. It was more aerial. As people got stronger, you know, golf took a foothold in America. People were lofting the ball a little more. More clubs came out. You know, Bobby Jones uh, and his um, – uh, what was that? His little wedge that he kind of came up with, uh, you know, so these guys were coming up with more like sandwich type clubs. Um, so, but then you get to about 24 because he had this massive boom, like uh, the COVID boom. So we just went through the hundred years later of the same COVID deal. And we're really literally in the exact middle of our COVID boom in golf. They had the exact same boom, 1919, 20, 21. You know, Ross built 39 courses in 21. Uh, and I you're think talking about the Spanish, the flu, Spanish right? flu yeah. was yeah. COVID, you know, wow. 1918, 17, you know, and so uh, he lost a ton of projects in 17, 18 because of the war and then Spanish flu. I mean, like he had like six, you know, he went from 15 in six, you know, 1915, I think the numbers are kind of funny when you look at the graph though, you could look at the numbers by year of courses that I've kind of mapped out. Cause I just wanted to see like where he was at, what he was doing, why he was changing, you know, just trying to figure everything out. And, uh, but there was that Spanish flu boom and he had 33 new courses, I think in 1921, five rebuilds or reno renos, and then one, like three hole touch up. So <laughs> unbelievable. He never had more work in his life than 1921 but it was that like two years removed from the Spanish flu wow. kind of the same thing we're in right now, you know, um, where golf is King. Um, anyway, so by about 24 though, he really turned the notch up like 24, 25. He like literally went, okay, I'm seeing what Rainer's creating, you know, with Fisher's Island and all that stuff and Camargo and, and all these really extremely bold golf courses. I see what Langford and Moreau are doing. You know, these guys were really coming on, 21, 22, 23, 24, before Rainer died in early 26. Um, but what Langford Moreau was doing, Rainer definitely, I think, had a major, major influence on him. So he started getting really bold. Then we see the Aronimics in like 27, you know, Mountain Ridge, Seminole, Plainfield. Uh, I mean, his list from 25 to 31 is, that's almost all of his best work. Um, you know, I think Oak Hill was 24, um, you know, stuff like that. So, so if you look at some of his best stuff, uh, you know, Sciota, Sciota was early, um, but I knew he came back, you know, in some other places, Wanda Moisett, he came back in 28, redid all the greens and they're probably the best set of Ross greens out there. Wanda Moisett, stuff like that. So anything he touched from 24 to 31 is very special yeah. and has a great deal of well thought out greens, you know, putting surfaces, and great roundings. Then it's kind of like the dark ages. So, you know, period three or 3.5 is from 31 to his death in 48. And you see bulldozers coming to fruition. He used this bulldozer for the first time in 1933 at Allegheny in Pittsburgh. And you can see like huge cuts out there on the back nine. Unbelievable. Where he cut like, <laughs> made like 30 foot cuts and fills. It was the first time he ever used a dozer. Um, and then that, 
replaced the teams of horses with the scoops. And then instead of throwing 200 guys on a project, they threw 40. And then they had big equipment, the steam shovel, the uh, dozer, stuff like that. Um, so kind of the dark ages of golf was beginning, you know. And so you see stuff like Mark Twain up in New York was a works WPA golf course in 37. A um, bunch of others, you know, where it's just the details aren't there. Everything's smooth and bland. The greens don't have that cool, perched up, old school look to them. Everything was kind of rudimentary built with the big stuff, you know, and then it was all about time and money. The only one that probably survived out of the WPA and, you know, kind of after 31 was George Wright um, up in Boston. That was like 37, 38, 39, but it took like three years and they had a ton of labor. They just threw on it. They had a ton of rocks to clear. They built like all the stone walls around the whole perimeter with all the rocks. So that was about the only really great one after 31, in my opinion. And the other ones are good. You know, like the back nine at Irondequoit, he did uh, late in his career and some other stuff. You know, they're good, but they're not, they're not, they don't have that supreme old school, you know, vibe. Yeah. I got to say the vast amount of information that resides in Tyler Ray's head of golf, golf, Donald Ross, is it? Is it like other things though? Like where if we were to ask you about baseball or cricket, you just, you got no room for anything else. It's like, it's like, sorry, Donald Ross occupies three fourths of my brain. I can't give you anything else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Donald Ross, but it's also all the old golden age architects. Yeah. Yeah. Before when I was interviewing for Wakanda, I went and visited every Langford and Moreau I could see. I mean, almost every one and just trying to learn, what they were up to and maybe what, how they were evolving, you know, Langford and Rose, stuff like that. Same with Flynn. When I was, uh, when we were interviewing for Philly country club and I've had some, I've been fortunate to work on a couple of Flynn's and, uh, just go on study trips and study and see every Flynn you can. And, uh, and, um, you know, same with, uh, right now, what are we, what are we into right now? Uh, Oh gosh. Um, you know, Perry Maxwell stuff, really into that. Um, yeah. But no, just trying to always figure out what they were thinking. You know? I, it's it's fascinating. I can, I, can just, I can just pick up. I mean, you're an investigator on this stuff. You just want to get to the truth on it and you're digging hard. One thing that never really crossed my mind when I consider all these places is how competition worked into it and how Ross was watching Langford and how uh, Rayner was influencing that uh flynn like i'd never really considered the actual place in time and you have to for what you do you have to put them all together yeah yeah i mean matt i always look at what was being built within a year before and year after because these guys there was so much writing out there i mean tilling has and tilly oh that's that's pretty much the one that we're in right now because the kansas city country club and and um we're deep diving into tilly right now and I'm rereading Phil Young's book on Tilly, stuff like that, and all his writings. But um, yeah, and seeing every Tilly we can and going going up to Wingfoot again to study Wingfoot and Quaker and Fenway, stuff like that, you know, and Philly Cricket and um, Somerset Hills and some of his best stuff. But uh, and Baltimore, I just lined up Baltimore Country Club, Five Farms to go see that again. Hadn't seen it since probably 07, but now that we're doing a master plan for Kansas City uh, Country Club, which was a 25 tailing asked it's like i want to see everything that was from 24 to 26 in his career like where was he at you know and then the stuff before and then the stuff after obviously and 
but uh but yeah you're we're investigators and then um i don't know we just try to figure out what was going on that time period what they're influenced by you know why the why i guess you know why did they do this here almost every time matt it comes down to funding they didn't have the proper funding the golf course didn't get built properly almost every time just like how it is now uh so funding was always number one but then there's some always some other circumstances like rain or dying uh like lookout mountain was three-fourths done when rainer died you know so we can we see why a couple things didn't come out perfect there mm-hmm. you know and we're going to try to put that back and uh and it was tough to get to up to chattanooga lookout mountain is up there you know especially with train travel back then and rainer obviously died from exhaustion and exhaustion and uh you know uh pneumonia because he was overworked i mean he was just on fire and uh going everywhere but uh but yeah yeah, definitely. That's um, amazing. Just always trying to figure stuff out. So, all right, I, I got to sneak in my Beverly questions because obviously that's a place that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, what aspects of your work at Beverly are you most proud of? Ooh, gosh, that's a great question. Probably the scale. I think scale is lost. I think so many architects that, uh, you know, like when a club calls me to come in uh, and interview and you go there and you go, Hey, kind of like, why are you getting rid of the other architect? (laughs) Why are you moving on? And they kind of give you some reasons, this and that, but then you can kind of really start looking at what they missed or what they didn't knock out of the ballpark. And almost the number one thing I see is scale, you know, um, boldness, uh, you know, so Beverly in the old aerials had these incredible big bunkers, scale, big greens, big fairways. You know, it was, it was a big boy course. I mean, 65, 6,600 yards back in the day in 1919. That would translate because it's 18% is the number right now, you know, is the translation to our game. So it would be 8,000 yards. <laughs> you know, imagine playing that. Um, luckily, well, they had no irrigation like we talked about earlier. And so the ball would run out. I mean, they would hit a 300 back then because the ball would run 120 yards. So if, if we didn't have irrigation, imagine how far your drives would go right now. Yeah. Guys are hitting a 330, but it'd be like they'd hit 400 yarders. So playing 8,000 yard course, I mean, a lot of these guys are playing 8,000 on tour soon, you know, 7,800. So it's kind of funny how that's yeah. going. Yeah, and it's, um, it was, it, you're helping me realize some other things too, like uh, the, the you know slope of the green back to front, right? Ross, that we see so often that that was to stop the ball. It wasn't to, you know, piss us off when we're short-sighted long or, uh, right. or, or spin the ball off the, I mean, that that's now the, the challenge has almost shifted in a way, right? Where it was something to help you. Now you can't hold a green if you're hitting a 60 degree. Controlling spin. Controlling yeah. spin. That's it's other, other ways than distance that our game has changed, I guess. Correct. Correct. So, uh, but yeah, it's a uh, fascinating, a couple other things, I guess I'm proud of, you know, it's definitely scale. Um, I mean, I shaped every bunker, uh, every green expansion, every, I mean, I was there, gosh, four days a week. I felt like more, but, uh, you know, the bunkers I'm really proud of, you know, there's so much detail and character in them. And I love when they mow them and then the sun kind of hits them late in the day and you can kind of see all the wrinkles and ripples. You know, I know Ron Pritchard was, he was getting after me a little bit because he's like, look, 
we try to obviously put back period style stuff. And he's like, ah, 1918, 1919 was Ross putting that much stuff in them. You know, that much character in this stuff. Are you putting too much character in these bunkers, Tyler? And we were probably overthinking it, but I was like, well, Ron, I want him to look like the horse and scoop, you know, the tag, the team of horses and the scoop kind of scoop these things up and, and they kind of eroded a little bit. And, and, um, we've seen so many old photos too, from the twenties of these great old Ross courses that were like right after built. And they're very steep and very rugged and they kind of have those humps and hummocks. So I just tried to make it look period style, but I'm really proud of that when I go out late at night, you know, afternoon uh, out of Beverly and they fit really well into the landforms. So one thing I see a lot is other architects and teams uh, shape everything with excavators. When you shape everything with an excavator, you have a really tough time tying things into hillsides and landforms. I shape a lot with a bulldozer. Because if you think about a te- a, the team of horses, the two horses, and then the four and a half yard scoop or whatever, how big it, I can't remember how big, three and a half yard scoop, they would pull this stuff up and it's identical to the dozer blade, literally. And so I'm just taking the dozer blade and scooping out the dirt from the cavity of the bunker and pushing it up. Same exact process. And so yeah. they would tie things out and blend these things into these rolls in the hillsides and make them look like the bunkers were always there. And so I spent a ton of time tying things in and my disturbance areas might get a little bit bigger, but I'm tying things into these shoulders. So they look like they're just blended into the shoulder and where I'm shaping with a bulldozer. I think that that's a game changer where these guys are shaping the excavator and they just pack this stuff in and, you know, um, and then they kind of have, things that aren't tied in that aren't blended in really well. So I think that is a big difference. And I'm really proud of that when I go out there and look at that. I think I have the ultimate compliment for you on that work is my, uh, uh, my brother-in-law ordered me Andy Johnson's print. Uh, Andy did a nice, he, I think he said it was one of his best pictures ever taken. It was looking down eight uh, with Chicago city skyline in the background. You get, uh, you get five green, you get six green in the distance and it's just those landforms are, are, you know, the sun's hitting it. It's a sunrise, but it's hitting it so perfectly. Well, my brother-in-law, uh, his, his sweetheart, he got me that for a Christmas. Perfect, perfect Christmas gift. I open it and the rule in our house to date has been, you know, golf stuff goes in this room I'm sitting in, right? You gotta, you can hang it, but it's gotta be in your wall <laughs> and, and not, not, out. my wife loved that picture so much, Tyler. She said that, can that go in the living room? Oh, wow. because it's not just, I mean, it's, it's a work of art, my friend. So I think that's the ultimate compliment from the Considine house. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. That's awesome. I love hearing it. I, I want to ask one question about that hole, about number eight, because this is, this is uh, bugged at me a little bit. Just, I, I, I like you, I got to know the why. Um, eight green, monster green, right? Back to front, maybe 60 yards. I, it's, it's expansive. Um, I played with, uh, Paul Richards, our, our uh, past golf historian, and I think he confirmed for me that the original Ross green was uh, punch bullish in the front portion of that green, and we later added uh, the back part of that green. Could you walk me through? Because it is it is unique. It's kind of one of those holes that just lays where it is, right? Uh, but the landforms around that are so cool. And I, and I, I think of your work, Tyler, the, uh, the eighth hole really was one that maybe didn't jump out at people during the round and now it really does but but that green i just want clarity on uh what was the conversation and and what was the what was the original from your understanding and and uh to build it the way it was yeah so we did we did find um 
we were very fortunate that us amateur in 1931 they had so much ground level photography and so we had a a shot of francis we met in the right greenside bunker and the right greenside bunker was depressed below kind of the punch bowl and it had a kicker there but we had him you know hitting his shot out onto that kind of punch bowl green so you're correct in that it was a front punch bowl green um and this is this is what i got back to probably 40 minutes ago that was probably a bendelo and then probably a george o'neill green that he left so maybe he didn't blow up every green at beverly uh you know maybe he did leave that one um so anyway so that thing just sat right on the ground right at grade almost like a big punch bowl the water would almost run through it you know front to back and then go off the back um and i believe in the 80s or 90s the back was expanded um, probably because of turf quality that usually is the pusher on that, but it probably was a punch bowl, probably wet. And they said, Oh, this is always so beat up. Let's expand. Let's expand it. We have all this room. So somebody expanded it. They did a pretty good job of it. Um, and that was one in the meeting where I wanted to get rid of in the membership meeting and say, look, we got to get back to the original, you know, straight up beat, you know, correct to the heritage, you know, let's put this puppy back right to the 31 us amateur. Let's make it spectacular. And, that was met with a lot of resounding, uh, you know, um, I guess blowback, <laughs> you know, and the, and the membership said, look, this is one of our favorite greens. It's, yeah. We understand it's a mutt, uh, and the front is original, but the back isn't, but let's just keep the back for now. And you do whatever you're going to do with the rest of it. So I gave a concession there. I said, okay. Um, you know, I realize you guys love it. It is what it is. Um, so that's, that's what happens sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, you have to stand really firm. I stood, I stood my ground on 12 and a bunch of other holes and was really, really, um, hardcore about a lot of stuff. And, and so there's some give and take sometimes, but you know, that one, it didn't bother me. It's just more green space, more, more flagstick locations. It might not play original in the back, but the front does. So, you know, what it is what it is. And it's still a great awful. Yeah. Uh, one last comment on Beverly before we move on. Uh, number 11, I feel like, was a, par, a beast of a par five, no matter how you shaped it. I mean, it always has been, but, uh, you know, at almost 600 yards. And um, one, the work you did, I actually came out the day and, and you were on the dozer shaping those bunkers. And, and what immediately caught my attention was that this hole now has the potential to have three blind shots when you're not on that favorable side of the fairway and you're on the side of the fairway that has more uh, tilt to, to where your, you know, your ball's not going to be level. If you go down, if you take on the OB and you're in a flat spot, you get to kind of see the hole and, and it is a uh, more strategic opportunity to play it. But I, I wonder if you can just tell me about that hole. Cause the, the other area that I'll leave for you to comment on is the, is the green. And it feels like a very, it is back to front but with the um, reverse thumbprint or what you might call it in the center of it. I'm just curious, is that how Ross is that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'll go back to front. Okay. Uh, so the, the, the little dome, the little bump uh, is very Ross. There's one in the second green at Northmore. Um, there's one at Tujica. There's one at Barton Hills. There's, there's probably 10 of them, you know, probably 20. 30 out there, but uh, I see it very often how one little bump in the middle of the green uh, can really uh, change the whole green, you know, affect every putt. The one at uh, Northmore is very, um, 
it's, it's softened over time and I'm going to bring that back this fall, um, and use that. And then, and, uh, but you know, the one in Beverly number, there's a couple bumps in some greens at Beverly, ironically, you know, there's a little spine in 17. Um, there's a little, where else has a little bump? Um, well, definitely 11. And then, gosh, I feel like, uh, yeah, six kind of not really, um, yeah, yeah. It's a uh, number nine really doesn't have one, but, but yeah, it's a trait that I see often. And, um, and uh, I actually incorporated it into your short course that we're building because <laughs> yeah. I love that green so much, but 11 green has this great little bump. You can almost get them on the back and they break towards the back when you have a, you know, when you have a side to side putt and you're like, wait a second, this thing looks like it's 12% going to the front, you know, and then your putt breaks towards the back and it just flummoxes you. <laughs> so, so fantastic green. We got like 20, 30 feet back in those wings on the corner. So the green expansion really, really got that green expanded. So it has these backboards and these wings kind of, um, that's spectacular, but the bunkering, I thought we felt like, you know, um, you know, I just feel like, uh, there was a bunker off the tee about 200. That was really, really penal. And it was kind of blind. And if you got in it, it ruined the hole. So we eliminated that bunker. It wasn't original. It was put in at some point in the eighties, seventies. Um, so we eliminated that and then we tried to put back everything original. So you do have a blind tee shot over these kind of spectacle bunkers, which you can kind of walk, you know, the, the group trail right through, which is cool. Kind of broken up, fitting in that landform there, kind of taking your aim, uh, where you want to OB all down the line. Oh, OB all down the right, really uh, long. Um, but then we had some bunkerings, you know, a, a smattering of bunkers. Kind of, there was no really rhyme or reason to the layup. And so we felt like, you know, if we cut down a lot of these trees on the left, there's going to be nothing on the left. And people will just play down, you know, 15 of us. So we, we had a great landform at about 100, 110, 120. And we stuck a bunker back in there. Um, that we think we couldn't tell on the aerial photography it was there or not. It was really hard to determine. We could see a lot of the other stuff, but sometimes the shadowing, it's really tough, but we put one back in that hillside now. So you hit it off the tee and you have to obviously hit a great tee ball. And then the layup, if you're trying to go for the green, you have to hit over that left bunker or you have to stay right of it because if you're, if you're short of it, it sits on that high landform and blocks your view of everything. So then with that OB down the right, it really makes it exacting for that layup. You really have to hit a really good layup and your ball is all funneled towards the right bunker along that. Uh, that's kind of offset a little bit from that. So we feel like it's a really good three shotter. It's, I mean, I think the hardest thing for golf architects is to make par fives enthralling, you know, or, or, or good, you know, it's easy to make four great par threes. Uh, it's easy to make some great par fours and some drivable fun par fours, but it's really hard to make four, good par fives. Um, so, you know, or three good par fives, you know, or, or two good par fives and it's par 70. But, um, but for that one, we, we always thought, you know, it was just kind of a slog and we just wanted to have each shot, you know, your tee ball, your approach, and then your, your, uh, shot from the green, um, thoughtful. So yeah. I, I, let's shift gears to another, uh, society staple of ours. We, we, um, head down south to Ravislo Country Club. And, you know, it's been public since I moved to Chicago. And I have a very 
uh, long relationship with Rav because it was, uh, I remember the summer it turned public and I was just a kid working in uh, telecommunication sales, trying to make some dough and, and looking to play some golf. And this place, I, I was in love uh, on day one and it was in great shape. And they just restored the bunkers in 20, 2007, I believe. Um, so I was like, how about this? You know, I, I didn't have public golf like that in Northeast Ohio or there was, I just didn't know where to go. Um, but my question is, from your standpoint, you know, as the guy that's doing this restoration on place on, on so many iconic Ross courses, the funding for public, you know, give, give me some insight to what, what are the chances of a place like Ravislow or a place like Manikiki in, in Cleveland or these public, very public Rosses, what, what are the percentage chances that they actually get the funding to not, not just do a restoration, but to do it right. As you said, that really, that's always what it's come down to. Um, you know, is it, is it disheartening at all that, that, that these places probably won't be able to get the funding in the short term, or do you think, or, or is it more optimistic than that? Uh, you know, it is, uh, I mean, they do get their shot, but it's once every 20, 25, 30 years. Uh, usually we have a, I have a rare one at Jeffersonville outside Philadelphia. That's a public and we're kind of doing a couple holes here and there and bunkers. And so on there kind of every spring and fall, just shaping and working with a superintendent. So we're, we're making that, you know, and massive green expansions, fairway expansions. So a lot of grassing, grassing lines, bunkering, uh, rebunkering it. So we're, they're, we're fortunate there where they're, uh, they're giving us hundred, 150 a year to, to really be judicial, you know, judicious with and, and be smart with and, and help continually make it great. But yeah, places like Ravislow or Manikiki, Oh, they get like, I know Manikiki probably was done in the late nineties. And that is a fantastic Ross, by the way, that land is unbelievable. unbelievable. And um, last time I was there, I got rained out and had to walk the last couple of holes. And I was the wettest I've ever been in my life. <laughs> I had to go back to the hotel and like get the hairdryer out and dry off everything to like dry off and get, get a, go to the airport. But, um, but uh, so I need to get back there and see that again. Cause that, uh, that was a tough day, but, um, but yes, I, I think, uh, you know, they get, they get their one shot at glory, you know, every 25 years and they just have to be really smart. And unfortunately it's usually, you know, some people who don't really play golf who are kind of running the, running the show and they go for the cheapest option and then they set themselves back another 25 years. So you have to have really great planners and like the guys at Jeffersonville, they have an incredible township uh, manager and a great superintendent, great pro, and they all get it. And, uh, you know, they host awesome events with the golfer's journal. And I think, uh, no laying up was just there this weekend stuff like that. Um, and your society is probably, you know, super welcome all the time. And, uh, they just get it. They love golf. And, and, uh, I just wish more, um, townships and municipalities cared a little bit more, um, yeah, it's tough. It is yeah. tough. Yeah, it's not not easy, but I think it's it's also uh, yeah, it's important that we do have some of this compelling architecture and these uh, accurate accounts of history uh, for our public courses as well, so that they they can feel a part and a piece of this this game in our country, which has such a I think you put it idyllic uh, past and and something that we you know people aspire to. And then, and then they understand what's so special about these other places that they aspire to become members at and, and play. Exactly. 
the uh, the list of we touched on a lot of Ross. I, I do gotta ask about these other guys that you uh, you know have learned quite a deal about, and and you've touched up many of their courses or have you you've done work at. So uh, Rainer, you already talked about Tilling Hast. Um, I read last night the Strance brothers. Uh, have you worked on a course of theirs? And I'm just curious, you know, the aspects of these other architects that uh, that you admire that you admire most. Yeah. Um... I mean, gosh, there were so many, you know, Flynn's probably actually my top, you know, because Shinnecock and I mean, gosh, you think about his list, his top five is pretty hard to beat. You know, the country club of Brookline, Philadelphia country club, Huntington Valley, Lancaster. There's some unbelievable ones. Uh, you know, obviously you got uh, Cherry Hills, stuff like that. Um, but, uh, but Flynn, Flynn is spectacular. Um, he's probably my favorite. And uh, growing up in Philly, there's so many Flynn's, you know, there's 10 Flynn's around me. Um, but then, you know, Ross is right there nipping on his heels. No, only knock on Ross is he did so much work. Uh, you know, those 400, 422 courses that we mentioned, you know, Flynn probably did a hundred, you know, so one fourth of uh, what, what Ross was working on. So I think Ross was a little overstretched. I think he took on all that work just to provide work for his crew. You know, he had 2000 guys at one point in his company which is mind boggling. Uh, so, you know, I think he was just a, a little too kind and took too much, but, uh, and then Tillinghast, you know, when, when he was focused, uh, you see, obviously we see his product with Wingfoot and Somerset Hills and Philly cricket, Baltimore five farms, you know, it just doesn't stop sunny Hannah. I mean, the, the, the Tilly list is incredible too. Um, and he was very, uh, you know, influential at Pine Valley, stuff like that. Uh, Colt, you know, I think Harry Colt's probably the best, you know, uh, to throw a curveball in there, you know, because he was so UK. Um, but we just saw, you know, the Tokyo Olympics, you know, where uh, his disciple Charles Allison went over there and, you know, they built Kawana Fuji and, um, you know, Hirono, stuff like that. That's incredible. And, uh, you know, and then their prowess in the uh, in the UK, obviously, is unparalleled with Sunningdale, stuff like that. And, and, uh, but then you go over to, um, you know, Amsterdam and you have Japan, which is incredible. And, uh, and a bunch of others that, that Colt had his, his hand on, uh, and then Tom Simpson over there, there's just, you know, the top 10 is there's so many good guys. It's almost unbelievable, you know, and Rainer, Rainer's great. Um, I'm not the biggest template guy, you know, I love one-offs and a hole that you've never seen before, uh, just fitting the land and kind of ending up in a funky location or something. So I'm more of into that. Um, but there are great templates. Like we just were out at Camargo, uh, last week. I hadn't been there since college. So I haven't been there since 04 or five, uh, 03. And it was great to see again with, with like where, what I thought about what, um, Camargo and Cincy, you know, then, and then what I thought now, and it was two totally different things, you know, and I, I saw a lot more now and felt like I, I could understand a lot more and, uh, but Rainer died halfway through that, you know, so there's no fairway bunkers, hardly at Camargo, <laughs> you know? So it's a little, little underwhelming in some aspects, but, um, anyway, but, uh, but no, the top 10 is interchangeable for me. I mean, they're all incredible. They all had so many great projects. Stanley Thompson, he's so underrated, you know, he's a uh, incredible architect that we didn't see enough from, but still like when you go up to Cape Breton, uh, the, the um, Highland Links, I was up there uh, a year or two ago. It's 
absurdly good, you know? And so it's cool. It's just great to see this stuff. Like then you go to Paris, you go to Fountain, Fountain Blah, um, you know, and, and Morfontaine, you know, with Simpson. And it's like Morfontaine, that thing should be top 10 in the world, you know, which it might be, but it should be. So it's just cool. That's why I love, that's why we love this game so much. Um, Lookout Mountain. I, I got to ask about uh, you, you're teaming up there, right? With Kyle, uh, France, and um, it's uh, it's a special place for our golf society. So we, we've been going down there since our first ever spring meeting, which is held at uh, uh, Sweetens Cove. But the the folks, we have a few mutual members who are over at Lookout. So we always make a stop. And um, man, it's, it's uh, when I heard the good news that it's official that you guys are, are headed there, I I was, you know, giddy to see what the work's going to be in, in our next visit. But also I was like, that's a, that's such a site. Like, where do they start? <laughs> so where do you start, Tyler? Like what, what, what has you most excited about that project and what are you guys, what are the steps? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably the most exciting, you know, when you go to a new course and interview, you're looking at the land, you know, the land and the routing. Because if, if they have those two basics that are, if they have that, that, you know, if those two are spectacular, you can really work with the other stuff and you can always rebuild greens. You can always build bunkers, stuff like that. Um, remove trees, but yeah, there, if we remove some trees and do some proper tree removal and kind of tree management and expose some of those incredible views, you know, we can see for hundreds of miles up on that mountain. I think that'll separate them a little bit. And then, uh, you know, Brian Silva was in there in the late nineties, early two thousands and did a pretty darn good job of bunkering. You know, uh, I think he's pretty darn good with, uh, with Rainer. And uh, sometimes he gets a little too square with his stuff where Rainer really, that's such a fallacy where people think, Oh, you know, every bunker Rainer did, he's an engineer with square. It's total opposite. You go to courses that are untouched, um, like Camargo or, or Fishers, you know, they're all, they're big submarines and they have a lot of waviness to them, a little more natural you know, like national golf links where he learned everything. So uh, there's some fallacies there too, you know, that a lot of architects like, uh, I don't want to name names, but they're working at other Rainers and they just put all square stuff back. And you're like, okay, I guess you went somewhere and saw that. And that place had been redone and it had been redone improperly. And you saw that because you haven't seen every Rainer and that's your thought of Rainer. So when people don't go and see everything or try to see everything and make their own opinion, um, that's where they go wrong. And then Full the picture. squareness thing is all blown out of a portion. But when you go see West Hampton and this stuff, because Gil's doing it right, Gil restored West Hampton and a bunch of fishers and a bunch of others, um, nothing square, you know, and they have character and stuff like that in the back shoulder. Um, but then you see other stuff, uh, it's kind of disappointing, but I didn't mean to go on a tangent, you know, to get back to lookout, it's, you get the views cause their number one asset is the views. You get those put back spectacular. The routings are already spectacular. We got to rebuild the greens cause they've been monkeyed with a lot over the years and the templates are kind of melted you know, like the, there's no thumbprint or horseshoe in the short. And we think there was, and it's kind of really monkeyed with now and holds water and, bunch of other things going on. So we want to push the greens all the way out to their fill pads, re rebuild the greens, float them out, get some of the templates back that we think they had, get back some of the bunkering because we did have a Rainer plan, which is spectacular. It was called Fairyland Golf Course, which is really cool. 
So um, one of them, the rare rainer plants. Um, um, so we're going to get that back. And Gil, Gil took over there. I think uh, the funny story for me that was really great going down there interview uh, last December and January was, you know, they said, uh, Hey, we're looking for an architect, this or that, you know, go around our golf course, give us your thoughts. And I said, Hey, I was in Keith Foster's office in 07 when you called him. I remember that whole interview process 14 years ago and Gil beat out Keith Foster. And so I remember that whole interview process. I remember doing a lot of research for, you know, about it. I remember Keith Foster going down there and, uh, they picked Gil because he was young and an up and comer <laughs> in 07. Consequently, they had, they had no money, so they never did anything. So Gil kind of stepped away a couple years ago. And now they've gotten to a point where their greens keep dying, you know, because uh, they're not draining properly. So they had to do something. And Gil said, look, I'm, I'm too busy for the next couple of years, but you should talk to these guys because they're next best option. So, um, which was extremely uh, kind of Gil. But um, so anyway, so we we're fortunate to get that. I'm teaming up with Kyle Franz uh, on a bunch of other projects, too, because he's probably one of the best shapers in the world and one of the best eyes in the world. Because when Gil got the Rio 2016 Olympic course, the first call he made was Kyle Franz. That's pretty powerful. So I don't have a big enough ego where I think I'm better than everybody else. So uh, I'm used to partnering, you know, working with Ron Pritchard, Keith, you know, a bunch of other architects uh, throughout my career. And, uh, you know, he's, we get along, we're best buddies and, uh, he's so, so, so talented. So I think together we're going to really create something special there. And, uh, but it's really about getting the trees removed, getting the greens pushed back, getting the ball running into those greens, getting the approaches firm, you know, the ball, the ground alive and, um, getting the bunkers put back. They're pretty much 90% put back, you know, Silva, like I said, did a great job. So we had to, kind of finagle 10% of it, get more of that template feeling back, get the natives growing in these vast areas. So then once you cut down the trees, get the natives growing, then it's just on fire out there. And then the wind blows because it's up on the mountain. So it's a whole you know, revolving door of about eight to 10 items that we're going to really hammer. And that'll break ground uh, next June, July, and, uh, and be open for 2023 May and be spectacular, hopefully. I have a questionnaire for you, which we always do with every guest. It's just fun golf thought stuff called the 19th soul. Um, but before we get to the 19th soul, I got one last question for you. And I, I think I know the answer because you, you uh, just to hear your, your comments just there about going up against Gil Hans and, and uh, all the great people in your industry. But you know, you're very sought after at this point and, and uh, being younger, I don't think age means much to you. It's just about doing the right work. But What's going to matter most to you in your, in your career? Is it, um, you know, I've heard you say elsewhere that you want really lasting work stuff that won't be redone in 10 years. Um, but I, I, I got to imagine, you know, having your being on your own now and, and having your name attached to things, uh, that competition element, just as we talked about with Ross and, and all that, 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 that matters too, that you want to have your name. Is it, is it one in the same for you? Like if the work is long lasting and enduring, your name will be up there with the very best a hundred years from now, or what, what do you hope for your career? What is the main wish? Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm not too worried about my name, you know, lasting or anything like that. And I always tell clubs I'm working with, uh, you know, Keith Foster always was brilliant about, 
he never wanted his name on the scorecard, you know, cause he wasn't that guy. And I always thought that was really classy. I'm the same way. And I don't ever want my name on the scorecard. Uh, you can have Seth Rainer or Ross on there, but it doesn't have to have mine on there. I'm not too worried about that. I just want people to play the golf course and think, you know, wow, this is really good. And there's nothing I'd really change. You know, it's about as good as it can be. And, uh, and it's fun. You know, and they, I want, you know, the greatest feedback I've had from Beverly and some of these other jobs, uh, Woodland, I just had a really great, uh, right up in the, in the mass, uh, Massachusetts golf association. They just had the Francis, we met tournament at Woodland golf club, which I redid last year. And a bunch of members just sent me this great article. They just wrote about how spectacular the golf course is now and how much fun and intriguing and, you know, and everybody's challenged there and, and, um, you know, um, they said some really kind words and, and, uh, so I thought that was so nice from the mass golf association. Um, you know, but that's, that's all I want is I just want the members to feel pride in their golf course and be really proud of it and want to host guests. And, um, you know, like when we go out to Beverly, um, you know, I can't think of maybe, but one or two things I do differently. I can't, I can't hardly think of anything I do differently, you know? And, and when you ask uh, any of the members, it's like, what would you change? You know? And they're like, well, one bunker is a little deep. Okay, great. You know, so out of 98 bunkers, you know, one's a little deep. I think we can live with that, you know? And so that's the biggest gripe. I'm really proud. And uh, so that's all I want is I just want these things to really shine. And I want, I want them to see like how great Ross's vision was for Beverly or how great Ross's vision was for Woodland up in Boston, um, you know, or Green Spring Valley Hunt Club, uh, the one on my shirt I just finished in Baltimore. You know, there's so many people down there have just written me such nice letters and notes, you know, about how their golf course has vibrancy again and it's fun and it's, it's so different than it used to be because it's just, it's not overgrown and old and, and, and kind of worn out, you know, and, and now it's just got this vibrant feel to it and they just can't wait to play it every day. They can't wait, you know, the tee sheet is just booked. And uh, so I love that. That's, that's the thing that gets me going. And um, you know, for these clubs calling down the line, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's great beating out other architects, um, you know, and they're all, there's a bunch of other guys doing such great work right now. We're in a great renaissance now of guys who are really, who care a lot. And, you know, cause we went through that seventies, eighties, nineties, where there was so much work. There's so much new work that any, anybody could just design golf courses and call themselves a golf architect. And, and a lot of it, a lot of the quality suffered. And then we went through that kind of whole downturn early in my career, you know, 708, 09, 10, 11, where it kind of weeded out everybody. And I remember sitting there with, with, uh, with Keith Foster and, you know, Bill Core and stuff like that and Corn Crenshaw. And I was just like so downtrodden on the industry, you know, and they were like, no, this is the best time ever. You're going to be so set up for success. And I couldn't figure out what they're talking about. Like, there's no work. <laughs> How am I ever going to like actually get jobs, you know, and, and create a name for myself? And they're like, Tyler, there's not going to be anybody left. You know, when you, if you get through this, you're going to have the best resume of anybody under 40 or 50. So then you're going to get all, you're going to get that next wave. And so it's kind of cool now seeing that, um, that wave is really, really finally hitting. And so if a club is looking for somebody under 50, I mean, there's really only three, four or five guys that I can think of that I know who are doing really good work, 
And uh, if I'm a part of that situation and that conversation, awesome. You know, that's all I want. I just want to look. That's what I always tell clubs is just give me a look, give me an opportunity. And then it's on my shoulders to, to showcase our talents and my team and what we can do. It's a, it really is a, a remarkable story. And for someone trying to make his way in golf, I mean, it's, it's inspirational, Tyler. It really is, uh, shows that you know, with commitment, hard work, some intelligence, some research back investigation, you know, you can, uh, anything is possible. So thanks. Thanks for, for talking with us. Now I got one last segment for you. It's the 19th soul. Don't know if you're a regular listener, but we do this for everybody. We've had some, uh, uh, some interesting responses. Ar- architects always have a very interesting take on these, but uh, I've adapted 35 questions from Marcel Proust, the French novelist of a past Renaissance in the 20th century. And his, his questions were attempting to reveal the truest nature of an individual. We're looking to grab the truest nature of the golfer, the soul of the golfer. So 18 questions for you, Tyler. They're, they're meant to be quick answer. Mm-hmm. So you could, you could take philosophical, but I, I know you got other things to get to today. So first thing that comes to your mind, let it rip. Tyler, are you ready? Mm-hmm. I am. Number one, when were you the happiest as a golfer? 11. Any specific time when you were 11 during that year? Last time I had a whole one. Oh, wow. <laughs> buddy, you're overdue. <laughs> Number two. What is the scariest shot in golf? Uh, downhill lie, tight turf, over a green. There you go. What do you do? Hybrid it? Putt it? You putt it, it comes back to your feet? Oh. You just defined a lot of shots I've been very ambivalent about at Beverly. So thank you for designing them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or bringing those back. Number three, what is your go-to order at the halfway house? Uh, probably a G2 Gatorade and some sort of you know, first tee or 10th tee bar, a little something to keep it going because I tend to bonk around 13. Don't we all? Number four, what is the trait you most deplore in your own golf game? Bulky putter. Number five, what is the quality you most look for in a playing partner? Hitting greens. Number six, what is the trait you most deplore in other golfers? Trying to hit it too far. (laughs) We're all guilty these days. Number seven, what words or phrases do you most overuse on the golf course? Get down. <laughs> I say that a lot. Get down. Oh no. Where's that going? Um, yeah, get down or uh sit. <laughs> Interchangeable. They mm-hmm. both work. Number eight, what golfing talent would you most want to have? A great wedge game inside 130. Scoring clubs. Number nine, what is your most treasured golf possession? Um, I have some really old, old hickories that I I've collected and passed down uh, one from my grandfather, which is really cool. And, um, one at St. Andrews, one has muscle, muscle, muscle burr, you know, on there, um, muscle burr links, I think. And then, 
uh, maybe some Pine Valley plates in the back, in the background. Um, you play in tournaments at Pine Valley, you try to win a plate. And I think that's so cool. And, uh, you have to really grind because these guys are so good out there usually. And you have to play really well to get a Pine Valley plate. That's great. Those are all, those are awesome. Number 10, we're making the turn. What's the one thing in your golf bag you should throw out? The two iron. <laughs> you still carrying a two iron. Yeah. And, and for the last year, I hit, once I hit about 36, I can't 36 years age, of age. I can't hit it anymore. I it's like a, a switch went off literally. Yeah. I, I retired mine two year and a half ago. So I joined the club, man. It's, it's five woods from here on out. It was the best club in my bag. Literally, I could hit the stripe in the fairway. If we're doing half and half cut, I could hit it from 16 to 33. And I haven't I haven't hit a good one in – I hit one good one this year. <laughs> but that one good one probably felt pretty good. It was on a par five, and I hit it to about two feet on par five from 270 or something. So that was that was the best one because I'll remember that for a long time. It was a tournament, and it was, it was meaningful. But uh, – other than that, I haven't hit a good one all year. <laughs> Number 11, and we're going to remove your occupation of architect and designer from the answer of this question, but uh, what is your favorite occupation in golf? Or more specifically, what's your favorite occupation at the golf course? Mowing greens. The mowers, the, the, the grounds crew. Yeah, yeah. I, I always liked uh, – well, actually – I always like cutting the cup and determining the pin location, flagstick location for the day. That is still to this day, I'll get up and uh, my, my club has, uh, luckily we have some app that shows you the pin locations because we have the computer do it, you know, uh, so it's not, um, you know, nobody points fingers, but they pick some <laughs> incredible pin locations in some crazy spots, but I love that, you know, because I hate the monotony. Yeah. of every day. Oh, you go out there and pins in the front, oh, pins in the middle. I love the crazy pins. It's stuff you never see. And I think it adds flavor to the game. And so cutting greens or, um, you know, and, and, you know, putting your heart and soul into cutting them and making them perfect, you know, rolling them or pick, picking fun flagstick locations. That always was the best job back in the day. That's, that's a great answer. And it actually, I I've had the, through the golf society, you get to occasionally a venue or a host will allow me to set pins, you know, what pins would we want to see for the event? And, uh, it's now dawning on me that that's just like the tiniest little sliver of understanding what it might feel like to be an architect and see people play your golf course, mm -hmm. that this little decision of where the pin is, it, it dictates so much conversation in the clubhouse and so much, so much dialogue that you, you probably feel that on the millionth degree. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, number 12, have you ever asked another golfer for their autograph? Yes. I've had, uh, Nicholas and Palmer when I was a young guy. And, and you got both. Yep. Got both. Pretty sweet. And Chi Chi Rodriguez. Those three. Legend. Legend. He is number 13. What historical golf figure do you most relate to? Ooh. Wow. Historical golf figure. Um, hmm. I thought well, this one would be difficult for you with your uh, knowledge of golf history. I mean, who, who do you most relate to in that bunch? Well, 
there's, you know, architecture, probably a different answer, but golf, probably Jim Furyk, because I have just a homemade swing. It's not ugly. It's just, you know, short, like John Rahm. But um, they always called me Furyk growing up, like everybody at every club I was ever at, you know. And, uh, and I don't have a loop or anything, but it's just kind of homemade, quick. And, um, but I do have a nose like Furyk, I guess. And when I wear a hat, I do look like him. So... <laughs> or did when he was younger, but, uh, so I, I got Furyk a ton. So with him and he's local, he's a Philadelphia guy. Great, great player. I've seen him shoot, you know, well, we all saw him shoot 59. Um, but, um, and then maybe golf architecture wise, uh, that's so tough. That's so tough. Um, you know, uh, I, I can't compare myself to any of those guys. I don't, I can't even begin to think about it. It's thought that's, I knew it'd be tough for you. I fear Furyk is not the answer I was pr- predicting, yeah. but I will go with that one. Yeah. 14. Underrated. underrated. He was underrated. Oh, so good. He's in greens, baby. He's so good. Yeah. Number 14. What is your greatest golf regret? Um, gosh, that's really, that's, that's the whew, greatest golf regret. Probably not playing in a USGA event. Yeah. I, I, uh, I pretty much have given that up, but I missed by one six times. Like the US, USAM, I missed, I shot 138, 139 a couple of times and didn't make it, you know, uh, like senior year, freshman year, high school or college in college. So I had some really great scores and just missed because there were so many good guys in it. And then uh, the US Mid-Am, I missed by one or two a bunch. And uh, the four ball, we had it a couple of years ago up at Garden City, my partner and I like six under through 13 and kind of just faded a little bit coming down the stretch and like five under got in and it was, and it was going abandoned. We were like about to cry. So I, I haven't played in the four ball just cause I've been so busy the last two years. I haven't played in the U S mid am qualifier the last two years, but having those five or six close calls. Uh, yeah. I'd love to play in a USGA event. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I'm holding out for the senior am now. Yeah, there you go. There's it's there's there's time. Yeah, yeah the USGA and, and they're reinventing themselves every it seems like yeah. maybe there's a mixed four ball coming down the road. Who knows? That could be cool. I, I hope I, I'm like you. I couldn't do it on my own. So I had to go find someone more talented than me and team up with them in the four ball. And that got us in. So keep yes. keep the hope alive, is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm gonna do that, I think, soon. Yes, yes. Uh, let's see here. Number 15. Do you have a favorite golf book or a book that you recommend, uh, the most? Probably. Um, well, it's very technical, but golf architecture in America by George Thomas, very technical, but it shows you how brilliant he was. And he was thinking about everything. Uh, so golf architecture, America, I think from 1926, it's a great book. And then probably, um, golf architecture, um, by, Mackenzie is pretty good. And what else? Um, I go back and read golf has never failed me sometimes from time to time, like once a year by Ross, um, because it was a lot of the, they did find a lot of his writings in the attic. I think his nephew did in the nineties and then they made it into a book. So I do believe a lot of it is true. I know Ron Witten edited it and I had lunch or I had dinner with Ron Witten couple months ago and I was trying to grill him like, Hey, did you, did you change some things in this thing? And he said it was pretty darn accurate. So hearing it from the source, I felt good. Uh, but that's a great one. Cause it's an easy read. 
And he's straight to the point like this, you know, 19 soul. Uh, he's straight to the point. So it's great. That's a good one. Uh, this one, we, we give architects the, the out card if they want it. But number 16, what is your least favorite hole in all of golf? Oh, no. I'll opine. No problem. Um, <laughs> it's probably the 18th at, at um, Waste Management. Uh, the 18th at Waste Management. The par four? Yeah. Drivable? Uh, 18th is not. 18th is like 390, 420. But, you know, you play, you go through that gauntlet and 15, 16, 17 are cool. You know, 15 is that reachable par five with water. 16 is a great par three. 17 is the drivable par four. Yeah. That's spectacular. Um, Or I might have 16 to 17 reversed, but I can't remember. I went there a couple of years ago. And, um, but 18 is one dimensional. There's church pew bunkers on the left. There's bunkers on the right. Rough. You can only hit it in a 12 yard alley and it's the bane of golf. I hate one dimensional golf. And then there's no bunkers in the front. It's just the greens right there. It's very boring. I'm like, really? After those three great holes architecturally to the anticlimactic finish. And guess what? Every year it's an anticlimactic 18. Yeah. There's never any, never any wow on 18. The That's tournament so is won or lost on 15, 16, 17. That's so, so true now that you say it. And I, you feel it with that hole. And, yeah. you know, they, they threw some church pews in there. It's got to be architecturally interesting, right? They tossed yeah. them. Yeah, that's laughable. And most guys, I, I know distance is so challenging. But for that hole, like, I think. They just you know, blow it over. They just blow It's not even a, the pond yeah. or the. Um, yeah, the pond doesn't come in play or the church pews. Yeah. And the church pews might for Zach Johnson. But, like, why are we handicapping him? So it's. <laughs> Oh, I hate that hole. Yeah, it's uh, just the announcers even, uh, we'll keep it short, but Matt, the announcers, when they get to 18, they go, all right, yeah, that's about it. Tournament's over. Like even the announcers, they were like, eh, game's over. Because <laughs> they know, oh, he hit the tee shot. Okay, he missed the bunkers. Game's over. <laughs> uh, Let's wrap it up. There's not going to be a playoff. That's so funny. <laughs> uh, number 17 is a music question. So if you have one song to listen to, I don't know if you listen to music on the golf course or not, but if you had one song to listen to either on your way to the golf course or hitting balls on the range or actually on the golf course, what's that one song that you would want to listen to? Probably money by uh pink Floyd. Oh, wow. Yeah. That or wish you were here, but that's a little sad, but yeah. any, I mean, you could, I could play dark side of the moon. Boom. Play the whole album. And I'm in the dozer and I might hit replay. They just keep going. We're on the golf course. You you are an old soul, man. A little seventies throwback, Pink Floyd. That's awesome. You go wrong. Rhythm to that one. Yeah. And finally, number eighteen. Uh, I don't know if you have a motto, or maybe you do, but uh, if you do have a motto, what what would it be? Uh, far and sure is great. You know, that's always a great one, and it harkens back, obviously, to St Andrews and all that, and CB McDonald used it on everything. You see it at Chicago Golf Club and everywhere. You know, I think it's on their scorecard and all that. But uh, yeah, far insurer is great. Or, um, you know, <laughs> drive for show, putt for no <laughs> when you're playing. Because uh, putting, man, I tell you, all these tournaments, all these fun rounds, even, you know, playing your Nassau with your buddies, you think back on the round and it comes down to like one or two putts, big putts. Always. Yeah. Always. Well, those are both perfect 
Tyler, thank you uh, so much for spending this time with us. I mean, we are, um, I think I speak for all the listeners that it's just fun to, to see a, uh, a young, confident guy in this industry doing really, really great work. And uh, we look forward to seeing more of that work as it develops uh, all around this great country of ours. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, hopefully let's, uh, let's get dinner in Chicago sometime soon. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at New Club Golf. This episode was produced by Mark Caldwell with research assistance by Jim Sitar. The Bag Drop is supported by members of New Club Golf Society and our official partners.